So good. Well, good morning. Second gathering's a little fuller this morning. Is it because of spring forward? <laughs> you guys are like, oh, it was too early. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Hosea. We're beginning a two-part series in the prophet Hosea titled The Relentless Love of God. Local Church St. Pete, God loves you. But are you convinced? If we're not careful, those words can lose all meaning. God loves you. Hosea was a prophet to the nation of Israel thousands of years ago. His ministry was as personal as one could get. God told Hosea to marry a promiscuous, adulterous woman who later betrayed him by turning to other lovers. The anguish of a husband betrayed and his gut-wrenching journey to get his wife back. That is the picture the ancient prophet Hosea gives us of God's relentless love. A love that pursues, a love that forgives, a love that restores. My question to us is, will we allow that picture to correct any misconceptions we might carry in our hearts and minds about the God of the Bible? Will we allow that picture that Hosea paints for us of God's relentless love, will we allow that picture to lead us away from and out of anything that has taken God's place in our lives? With that in mind, let's look at Hosea chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Chapter 2, verse 1, say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. And we'll stop there. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? We're stepping 
back in time into a foreign land. And, and, and for some of us here, Lord, for the first time into a, a book that is a prophet. And Lord, we just pray that you would help us take away the meaning and apply it to our lives. That we'd see it and be moved by it. That we would see something about human nature, our own nature here, and something about your character, what you want us to see about your character and what that means for us here and now. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Two things I pray we see here. First, a marriage no one will forget. And second, a purchase no one expects. First, a marriage no one will forget. Let me give you a little background first on Hosea. We don't know much about the man Hosea except what we have here. And this is a collection of his prophetic word to the nation of Israel. And you have to understand at this time in Israel's history, it is a divided kingdom. Israel had 12 tribes. 10 of those tribes made up the northern kingdom of Israel, also called uh, Ephraim or Ephraim, also called Samaria after its capital and also called Jacob. And so we hear those names uh, that are given to this nation. It can be hard to track. But we have the 10 northern tribes of the nation of Israel called Israel, led by a different king than the southern kingdom of Judah, and that was made up of two tribes. Hosea's ministry was to the northern kingdom of Israel during a very dark, dark time. And, and so it's, it's important for us to understand the context. And here what we have in these 14 chapters is... is uh, his prophetic word given in narrative form and poetic form and with all these kind of uh, beautiful metaphors and hard metaphors for us to hear as well. Um, but there's this cycle of judgment and then hope of restoration. Judgment and hope of restoration. Judgment and hope of restoration given through the prophet Hosea to the nation of Israel. I want you to look for the tension between love and justice, between deserved judgment and hope of future restoration. I know that when you sit down and read this book from start to finish, you experience a roller coaster of emotion because that's what's here. Your head spins, your heart aches, and that's the point. But in order to really understand the emotion and the passion behind this book, it is so vital that we remember Israel was in a covenant relationship with the living God. And when I say covenant relationship, think marriage relationship. And they were warned of the tragic consequences that would follow if they broke this covenant. Do you remember the story, the old story of Israel coming out of Egypt? They were enslaved to Egypt uh, and for hundreds of years, and God delivered them out of Egyptian slavery, and then he made a covenant with the nation of Israel. They would be a light to the nations. They would be a set-apart people, his people. Moses even gave them a song as a witness or a testimony against them should they depart from the Lord and list all the consequences. Well, unfortunately, that's exactly what's taken place in the nation of Israel at this time in history. Israel has grown apathetic, Israel has grown cold and indifferent. They have pulled away from the Lord and the worship of the Lord exclusively, and they've decided instead to tr trust in military power, trust in prosperity as a nation, to look to other gods of neighboring nations. 
while at the same time worshiping the Lord, how they thought was best. It's a recipe for disaster. And so what we're reading in Hosea is we are reading a broken-hearted prophet for his nation. The emotion's there. Broken-heartedness. But it also reveals, and this is even more important than Hosea being broken-hearted, it reveals a broken-hearted God for his wayward people. But let's be honest. The Lord's word to Hosea is a strange one. You might read this and think, you're asking Hosea to do what now? Really? What's the reason? Seems a little extreme, God. What are you doing here? The reason, the NIV puts it this way, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. And the ESV says, for the land commits great whoredom, harlotry, by forsaking the Lord. And so Hosea marries an unfaithful wife. Her name's Gomer. She was sexually involved with other men, not only before, but after they were married. And at some point, it looks like she received payment for her sexual behaviors. It's a mess. It's broken. And Hosea's marriage becomes this living, prophetic statement of judgment to a nation who has rejected God. But it's also a picture of God's relentless love of his faithful pursuit despite their rejection of him. And like I said, Israel had grown comfortable. They grew forgetful. They were indifferent to the ways of the Lord. They were fearful of the wrong things and pursuing the wrong things. And so in light of that, this gross syncretism developed there in the nation. What I mean by that is there was a merging of different beliefs into one. They would take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of worship of Yahweh, a little bit of uh, worship of the Canaanite, their neighboring nations, uh, their, their God, Baal, and, and their fertility and agricultural God. And when their prayers to uh, Baal didn't work, they would turn to other gods. This little spiritual concoction. What we have here is Yahweh, the Lord, plus something else or someone else equals idolatry, equals spiritual adultery. That's what we have here. The nation of Israel had entered a place of spiritual adultery. And so this picture of this adulterous, unfaithful wife is a strong one, and it's meant to be. Israel combined the worship of the one true God with Canaanite agriculture, agricultural and fertility gods of their neighbors, and they failed to see any inconsistency between the Canaanite culture, which was their neighbors, and the clear commands of their covenant relationship with the living God. And, and you know, it was a gradual mix. It didn't happen overnight. They brought these Canaanite practices mixed with these fuzzy memories of what God had really called them to do. And eventually the lines were just blurred completely, 100%. Uh, eventually the, there, there was no distinction at all in their lives. Instead of standing out as the people of God who belong to him, who are the set-apart people of God on a mission for his glory, they took on just a facade, like a, a surface expression of worship. And here's the deal. God refused to leave them in that state. He refused to leave them there. But here's, here's the deal. This is happening now. Yes, this happened then, 
with Israel, but it happens now still. In our culture, it is very popular to be spiritual. Very popular. I think of relativism. It's just, hey, you've got your truth, I've got mine. Whatever's true for you is true for you. You, you be you. And you believe what you want to believe. I'll believe what I believe, and we're good. Or we'll take a little bit of Jesus, a whole lot of something else. And we got our own concoction. We got our own spiritual soup that we run with. And that's dangerous. To be exclusively devoted to Jesus is not popular. In addition, we can take very good things that God has given us, like family, health, country, city, vocation, and make them the lowercase g gods of our lives. Not real gods. Not real gods, but things that mean the most to us and take the place of God. It could be her, it could be him, it could be it. What, what is it that's crowding, that's getting in the way, and, and it's, it's in a place that it shouldn't be in your life? We easily turn created things, ourselves included, we're created, and we can make ourselves the center of our lives, or other things in our lives the center of our lives. We easily take created things and make them the central thing. That's dangerous. It's idolatry. These are things that fight for our affection. These are things that fight for our attention, that promise power, comfort, fulfillment, but in the end leave us empty, looking for more. It's a relevant word for us, this ancient prophecy. Hosea is given three kids, and their names announce judgment. In verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1, his first son is named Jezreel which means the arm of the Lord scatters or sows. And it refers to a valley between the mountains of Samaria and Galilee, a place that had witnessed a ton of bloodshed and violence. In verse four, it says, I will punish Jehu for the blood, the massacre of Jezreel. What in the world is is going on here? You can read about this, Jehu, in 2 Kings uh, chapters nine and 10. Jehu is a commander of, the, of Israel's army, and he wipes out King Ahab, who was a wicked king, and his family, Ahab's son, Joram, and, and the king of Judah was there. He wiped him out as well, Ahaziah. He wipes out Jezebel and the prophets and priests of Baal, all in that place, all in Jezreel. And so in Israel's mind, when you hear the word Jezreel, it is a place of judgment and bloodshed. And so... Hosea's firstborn is named Jezreel. I don't know how it went for him at birthday parties, but that was rough. He says, I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. To hear that word must have just felt like a, I mean, an arrow to the heart. An end to the kingdom of Israel? Fast forward a few years and the nation of Assyria will be used of God to do just that in the valley of Jezreel. Lead them into exile and defeat the northern nation of Israel. The next child's name is No Mercy. I think that speaks for itself. The third child, his name is is given this, Not My People. Ever since the exodus out of Egypt, Israel understood they were a special people who belonged to God. God said, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. But God's upset. 
He's speaking through the prophet Hosea. He's angry at their injustice and their evil and their apostasy and idolatry and adultery. I mean, that adultery is not a small thing. And he doesn't turn a blind eye to it either. And he says, you're not my people. This is sobering. It's not easy. But right after these names are given, right after these names that are filled with warning and judgment, Hosea lays out a message of hope, of judgment, and of future restoration. And it's as if he's saying, listen, there's a day coming that will bring about the reverse of what these names actually announce. And so anyone reading this, anyone receiving this, has to ask, okay, but when? When is this going to happen? When is this reverse of this judgment, of this deserved judgment that's been announced? When is this reverse going to happen? When is this restoration and renewal, this blessing going to happen? Look with me in chapter 1, verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Do you remember the promise given to Abraham? Your children will be like, like the stars in the sky. You can't number them. There's a hint back to that promise. That promise of hope and future restoration, it's wedged right there in the midst of judgment. And then in chapter 2, verses 2 through 13, we see the consequences of Israel's adultery, of her unfaithfulness and idolatry. It's the kind of language of a legal proceeding that would take place at the city gates or in the court. Look with me here in chapter 2, verse 2. It says, plead with your mother, Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Plead with her. Plead with her. Contend with her. Strive. Rebuke her. He says, she's not my wife. She certainly isn't acting like it. So how would you feel if your spouse committed adultery on you. And maybe you've experienced that. So you, if, you, if you have experienced that, I'm sorry, and you know the heartache. If you haven't, you can imagine the feelings of anger and disappointment and frustration and, and just betrayal. And, and that is how God feels. And we don't often think about how God feels. We think about how we feel. Sometimes I think we can think that God is just this kind of indifferent, cold, doesn't matter to him. It matters. Remember, we talked about God correcting any misconceptions we might carry in our hearts and minds about the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is full of emotion. Do you see the anguish and pain here that he carries for his wayward people? Do you see that he's anything but indifferent anything but cold and numb to how they're behaving? The pain of finding out you've been cheated on, lied to, taken advantage of, rejected, and used. That's the pain God is experiencing. But God's goal is not divorce. He wants to stop Israel. He wants to get in her way. He wants her to stop her prostitution and adultery so there can be reconciliation And so Hosea goes on to lay out in painful detail accusations against Israel in chapter 2. And so we see in chapter 2, verses 6 through 13, that Israel actually gave credit 
for all that Yahweh did for her to her other lovers. How maddening would that be? Giving credit to others for what God has done. And then in verse 8 of chapter 2, it says, She did not know or has not acknowledged that it was I. I who gave. I who lavished. God is just letting them know, you you didn't acknowledge what I've done for you. You're actually giving uh, props to, to these false gods that did actually nothing. And then in verse 13, the NIV says, I will punish her. For what? Why will the Lord punish this nation? For the days she burned incense to the Baals and went after other lovers. But me she forgot, declares the Lord. That they forgot the living God. But God did not forget them. Maybe you have been behaving, living in a way that shows you have forgotten God. I have some really good news for you. The Lord has not forgotten you. And just as he pursued Katie, he's pursuing you. He's interested in you. He loves you. Even in the midst of self-destructive behavior, even in the midst of stiff-arming and rejecting him, I mean, just giving him the double bird. He has not forgotten you. In chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, look at this language. He says, I will allure her. This is strong love language. This is a love story, really. Love stories are full of emotion. I will allure her. I'll draw her in. I'm going to entice her. I'm going to lead her. I'm going to speak tenderly to her. And then then God says this, I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. The valley of Achor, Achor means trouble or disaster, and there was trouble in that valley. If you remember in Joshua 7, if you've read the book of Joshua, the nation of Israel uh, is beginning to conquer uh, different cities, and they they, they conquer uh, Jericho, and, and, and the plunder of Jericho was not for them. It was to be dedicated to the Lord, but there was a man named Achan who took a couple things that he really liked and was drawn to, and, and he hid them in his tent, and he buried it. Eventually, he was found out. That story would have been known to the nation of Israel because the valley of Achor is symbolic of a place of spiritual defeat and idolatry, a very dark stain in Israel's history, a dark moment. And what Hosea is saying is that in the midst of your darkest moment, your valley of Achor, your place of trouble and disaster and darkness, there is a door of hope. There's a door of hope. There's a way out. Do do you hear it? It's an ancient prophecy that is relevant for our lives today. A door of hope. Now, mercy is amplified all the more. Check this out in chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. Look what he says. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. They had started referring to the Lord as Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. 
I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. You have to have noticed the first person here. I, I, I. God is involved. Why is he involved? His involvement is rooted in his character, his great compassion. He is compassionate, gracious, loving, slow to anger, rich in mercy. And he is moving. He's on the move here. And what's his goal? That you shall know the Lord. That's his goal. And not just this head knowledge, but this personal experiential relationship that leads to renewal, revival, restoration, and awakening. Like an, oh my, I've been giving myself to the wrong things all this time. This conviction, this oh my response, what do I do? And God's grace is there to lift you, to carry you out of that into a new place. His mercy is being amplified. Remember I said this is, you got judgment, mercy, judgment, hope of restoration, judgment. I got a question. When will there be a people who know they are ransomed from their broken, from the broken ways of their ancestors? When will there be a people that know they are ransomed, purchased out of the broken way of their ancestors? When will this happen? When will this be fulfilled? Is this only for Israel? Look with me in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now, we just did a series in 1 Peter, so some of these verses might feel very familiar. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, So Peter is writing to a persecuted church made up of both Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles. And they're scattered and they're learning what it means to follow Jesus just like we are. And he says, you have been, you've been delivered. You've been ransomed, purchased out of your feudal, this feudal way that, that you've inherited from your forefathers. But not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And what have you been purchased for? And what is this produced in you? Look with me in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verse 9. What happens is that now you are a chosen race, a people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You hear it? Peter is quoting Hosea. Oh, he's swimming in Hosea. You were once not God's people, but now through Christ you are God's people. You you were once one who had not received mercy, but now through Jesus you have received mercy. So what's going on here is that what is spoken to ancient Israel is finding its fulfillment still today through Christ, through faith in Jesus. A word of hope for this nation, no doubt. It was relevant for their time, but it's still relevant for ours. 
These promises continue to find fulfillment today. Everyone who places their faith and trust in Jesus, they find out that they themselves now are God's people and have received mercy. The promises of Hosea coming true in Jesus. So first we see this marriage that no one will forget. It's hard to forget this marriage. Second, a purchase that no one expects. No one expects this purchase. Chapter three of Hosea. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. It's okay to eat raisins. What's happening here, this was part of their expressed worship to the false gods of the land, bringing loaves of of cakes and, and, and bread and grain and offering it to them. Verse two, so I bought her. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and three bushels of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So I, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. You read this and you might think, okay, that's strange. I know what we're doing here. We're stepping back in time. We're reading an ancient prophet. We're trying to get our bearings here. There's a lot of language here maybe we're not familiar with. But it's worth the hard work of figuring out what's going on here and why it's relevant for our lives. And if you were to read this book from start to finish, you'd close it and you'd be like, oh man, that's hard. Your stomach would turn, your head would spin, your heart would ache, and maybe you've experienced that a little bit reading just uh, the few verses we've read this morning but we're supposed to feel the depth of human sin and rebellion when we read this we're supposed to feel the weightiness of turning away from the living god and the consequences because they're real and we're supposed to feel the angst and the brokenheartedness of god there are a lot of questions that come to mind and that's fine but what's clear i believe what is clear is that our faithfulness isn't enough to exhaust the love God has for us. And it's a redeeming love that is truly incomprehensible. This picture, this picture of Hosea pursuing his unfaithful wife, finding her out. Was she a slave? Was she a temple prostitute? She was in debt. She was giving herself away. He goes and he finds her, he cleans her up, he brings her back, he pays off her debt. That is the picture that we're given of God's pursuit of us. That's the picture of relentless love that Hosea gives us. Do not think that this love story is only a story about Israel. We're learning about human nature, our propensity 
to double bird God, to stiff arm him and walk away. All of us. All of us have been born into this world, separated from God and swimming in our sin. But by his grace, he reaches down and lifts us out. It's our story. It's a story of God's radical, relentless love. We need to pause and just soak in it. Think about it. Let it just move you. It was meant to move Israel, meant to stir Israel out of their complacency and rebellion. And it's meant to move us. I mean, what kind of God would love like this? Let me tell you what kind of God would love like this. A forgiving God, a nurturing God, a healing God, a restoring God, a gracious God, a pursuing God. And that is the God of the Bible. Again, I don't know what picture you walked in here with uh, of the God of the Bible. But let the Bible, let the Bible present a clear picture of who God is. And you can wrestle with that. Chapter 3, verse 1, show your love to your wife again. The Hebrew word for love occurs uh, four times in one verse. And then Hosea says, so I bought her. I bought her. I want you to see what the song that is being sung around the throne of God includes. In Revelation chapter 5, there's this glorious picture of the throne of God where there is a lamb seated on the throne. And there are countless voices lifting their voice singing this. Revelation 5 verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from only Israel. That's not what they're singing. From every tribe, every language, people, and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. They go on to sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Jesus is that lamb who was slain. Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 10, the son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Picture Hosea going to the darkest place of the city, going to that cult, that temple, finding Gomer, purchasing her out of her debt, and bringing her back home and cleaning her up. Now picture what God has done through Christ, who has stepped into the darkness who took on the stuff we're made of, stepped into our world to do for us what we could not do for ourselves and to die in our place, offering his very life as a ransom that we might go free and find cleansing and forgiveness and restoration and renewal and relationship. Are you you hearing this? I, I I read Hosea many years ago and uh, I was, I don't know, in my young 20s, and at the time, I was writing a lot of songs, a lot of music, and I wrote a song about this book, and uh, it, it, I'll just share the words, a few of the words with you. You saw my heart and how I played the harlot. You sought me out, and you provided a way out of it. You saw me there drowning in my own despair, wallowing in what this world has for me. And you said, come back to me. 
You said, come back to me. I'm so caught up in who I am and what I want. What actually do I want? You said, come back to me. That's what God is saying through Hosea. Come back to me. In chapter 3, verse 5, afterward it says, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. David? The northern kingdom of Israel pulled away from the line of David 200 years before this prophecy was given. What is Hosea talking about? How are they going to return to David their king? Jesus came in the line of David. Jesus is the true son of David. Jesus is God's clearest expression of love and pursuit. Now, the tension between God's justice and love can be felt in the book of Hosea. But I want to encourage us to remember that on the cross, Jesus, the promised messianic king, the promised son of David, satisfies God's justice and demonstrates God's love. How did God the Son satisfy God the Father's justice? He lived that perfect life in our place and died a substitutionary death on the cross for our sin and received upon himself the punishment that we deserve. Sin has to be punished. God is just. He won't wink at it. By faith in Jesus, what we find out is our sin has been punished in Christ. Justice upheld, love displayed. It's beautiful. But maybe Jesus is just one of many spiritual truths that you've come to embrace. Maybe you're believing some common misconceptions that are in our, that's in our culture that Jesus can be one of many or even just one of a few things that you embrace. Maybe you've become your own authority. You're just doing what's right in your own eyes. You're your own judge. You're your own authority, but you're exhausted. You're tired. Maybe you've grown spiritually cold, and you're you're giving yourself to, to things or to people in ways that you know you shouldn't. Your affections are divided, and you're afraid that you've gone too far. If you fit any of those categories, I want you to think about this prayer. Maybe you can adopt this prayer as your own. You can say something like, Lord, I want to lose my appetite. I want to lose my desire for those things and actions that have taken your place. I want the real thing. I don't want the counterfeit anymore. I don't want the distorted version of you anymore. I don't want the version that I've come up with. I want the real thing. I want you, Lord. God is not emotionally detached or indifferent. The anguish of a husband betrayed in his gut-wrenching journey to get his wife back, well, that is the picture that God has given us. Let it lead you away from and out of anything that threatens to take God's place. And you better believe when you think of this relentless love that there is an open invitation to you today to repent, own up to the wrong you've done, 
and run to him and find favor and grace and to know him. That's his heart for you, to know him. Not just a head knowledge, but an experiential knowledge. One that is all about relationship. And the only way for us to be reconciled to the living God is through his son, Jesus. He's provided that way. And this continues to humble those who are followers of Jesus. Truly. It humbles us. But listen, if you're not a follower, you can be today. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for what we've learned here in this ancient book. You've helped us to engage it. And I just pray that, Lord, you would drive it home into our hearts. All of us have things to wrestle with in light of what we've read here. And we pray, God, that you would help us to do that hard work, to not just leave it here, to not just leave it on the pages of this book, but to, to wrestle with what you're doing by your spirit in our hearts, to lay aside things that we've been putting in the wrong place, to walk away from things that we need to walk away from and to take up our resolve to be exclusively devoted, wholly devoted to you and find in that devotion the joy and the rest, the fulfillment we've been longing for. Help us to do that, we pray in Christ's name.